0: Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Heather C. Liston for our November general membership meeting. Heather is joining us from the Bay Area in California, so it's 6 a.m., so major kudos for you for your flexibility to join us. Heather is a principal at the Clarity Financial at Clarity Financial, a certified financial planner, and also holds the IRS enrolled agent credential. She's an undergraduate from Princeton, a master's in accounting from NYU, and a Certificate in Personal Financial Planning from UC Berkeley. Let's give Heather a round of applause.
1: Thanks very much and good morning, everybody. Um, I would say nice to see you, but I wish I could really see you. Um, Okay, in any case, thank you very much for coming. I am going to share my screen just a second here. Okay, so Now, I think that I'm sharing. So I think you now see a screen that says tax trouble. If by any chance you don't, somebody send me a note in chat. Okay. And also, just one second, I'm looking to make sure, yeah, that I can see chat. Okay, good. I can. So also, I want to encourage you to put questions in chat along the way, which I will answer from time to time. But one thing I want to say up front is please don't write in the chat, can I have your notes? Okay, because CJ and I've already worked that out. I'm gonna send CJ notes afterwards, which she can share with you. So you don't have to ask that. Don't say, can I have your slides? Cause it'll get in the way of the other questions. Um, good, somebody says, you can see me. Oh, and Megan says the chat is disabled, put questions into Q and A. So thanks very much for that, that's helpful. Okay, so I will look from time to time at the Q and A and see what questions you have. And we'll take breaks from time to time to do those. So our main topic today is, What happens when you owe the IRS money or when they think you do? Because remember, one of our main messages today is that the IRS is people, and so they can make mistakes. They also have a lot of computers, some of which are running on very old software. So mistakes can happen, but because they're people, it's also possible to often work them out in some way or another. And I have found that realtors in particular, and by the way, I have realtors in the family. um, Realtors in particular very often do have issues with the IRS. A couple of reasons for that. One of the main ones is just that most of you are entrepreneurs. You're small business people. You're running your own business. And very often with any kind of entrepreneur running your own business, you're very busy trying to do what you need to do to sell your houses and do your appraisals and everything else. And then there's this whole other thing called running a business, and you have to know, like, how do I pay my taxes? How do I set up my payroll? How do I do all these other things? Sometimes it's a different skill set. I've also worked a lot with musicians in the past. That's very hard too. You're busy practicing the clarinet all day, and then you're expected to know how to file this 1099. It's a whole different skill set. So, also, the IRS does tend to look more closely at small business people. Who knows why? But they're more likely to audit people who have a business, so we can get things right. Okay, this is a New Yorker cartoon I kind of like, just shows how a lot of people feel in April when they've got to file their taxes. Now, right before we get into that main topic though, CJ Hooper has asked me to talk a little bit about energy credits. I guess it's something that's been on your minds. So we're gonna do that sort of quickly to not take too much time away from the main topic. Um, The Inflation Reduction Act, which you may have heard of, it's a little unhelpful in a name because the the acronym is IRA. We already use IRA for plenty of other things, but the Inflation Reduction Act is a new law that was passed very recently that includes many things, most of which have to do with climate change and energy and things like that. Most of it's not really about inflation. Another reason it's not the greatest name, but it does have a lot of good provisions in it that can help all of us. And so there, there are a few things in particular, the solar tax credit, rewards you with a 30% credit for a lot of things, including putting solar panels on your home. It's a 30% tax credit for home improvements and whole house efficiency. And there are rebate programs for other things, including heat pumps and induction cooking. So a little bit more about that. And a lot of these credits um, take effect in 2023, which is less than two months away now, but there are some you can still do in the 2022 tax year. So in particular, If you install rooftop uh, solar and home energy storage, you can get 30% off the cost of of those processes. Now, when I say 30% off, it doesn't necessarily mean that the vendor installing your solar panels gives you 30%, but it means that when you file your tax return, you get a 30% credit. That's real money. A credit is a dollar for dollar reduction in your taxes. And I have seen this work for clients of mine. They you know, maybe pay $100,000 to get solar panels installed. At the end of the year, we do their tax return, $30,000 comes back in the refund. So it's real money that you get as a as a reward for installing solar panels. Now, we've had this kind of credit for a while, but they keep kind of changing the rules about when does it expire. And so it has now been extended so that you can do it through any time in 2022 retroactively, and you can also extend it through 2034. Now, at the moment, it, it's scheduled that the, the amount of the credit is gonna go down in 2020, excuse me, 2033 and 2034 scheduled to go, to go down. However, those things have a tendency to change th- um, you know, before the time comes. So um, it may or may not happen, but the sooner the better right? That's the whole point is to get us more more into solar as soon as we can. Another big thing with the new energy credits have to do with electric vehicle purchases. In my neighborhood here in San Francisco, almost every new car anybody has bought in the last year or so has been a Tesla. The whole neighborhood's full of Teslas. Um, But one of the disappointing things about that for some people was there used to be a tax credit for buying a Tesla. And then they ran out because there was a 200,000 limit. Per manufacturer for a while. So once 200,000 people bought Teslas, no more tax credits for those. So some of those car tax credits are coming back. A little more detail on that in a minute. And also heat pump water heaters, you can get a rebate of up to $1,750. And it's 10%. For 2022, you get a 10% rebate up to $300. And an upgraded breaker box for an all-electric home, you can get an even bigger rebate. Um, little more about cars. So this is something I copied out of Forbes magazine. I do try to always put my sources so that if you say, well, where'd she make that up from? Okay. So before the inflation reduction act, the electric vehicle tax credits were about to expire. And also several places had reached their vehicle sales cap. So, and also there were no incentives for commercial electric vehicles. Like you, you may have read about the new Tesla pickup trucks, things like that or for used electric vehicles, because there was really an encouragement to buy new ones. And the credit couldn't be applied when you were buying it. So what's different now is you. there are 30 models eligible, that 200,000 cap is being lifted as of January 1, 2023, but only passenger vehicles assembled in North America qualify for that incentive. So you do need to do a little bit of checking around about that. If you're trying to buy a new car, talk to your dealer, make sure that it meets the requirements. Personally, I would have no idea if my car was assembled in North America. So we're now kind of all under pressure to check on things like that. But the good news is a lot more rebates and tax credits for electric vehicles. So they do want us to buy a new Tesla. You can feel good about that. A Little bit more home improvements and whole house efficiency. So the old non-business, that means personal home, energy property credit expired at the end of 2021 But this new act is bringing it back and actually making it better. So revived for 2022, retroactively, if you already did some of this stuff in 2022, good news, you're going to get tax credits for it. 100% credit for an energy efficient water heater or heat pump or air conditioning or furnace. Um, But there used to be a lifetime limit of $500. That's gotten better. Now, instead of a $500 lifetime limit, there's a $1,200 annual limit. So you can do lots of these things. Now, I realize I've already gotten one specific question that I don't think I know the answer to. She says, does it have to be on a rooftop? Ours was installed on our property. So the answer is, I think that that will qualify, but I'd suggest you talk to your own own local tax person and, and check the rules. Because again, this is not our main topic today and I'm not an energy expert. So I think there's a pretty good chance, but for your personal situation, always check with your personal tax advisor. Okay, a little bit more about the energy efficient home credit. In 2023, you can get $150 credit if you do a home energy audit. Um, They're encouraging us to improve our exterior doors, windows, and skylights, and to get electric or natural gas heat pumps. All right, that's it for energy for right now. We're gonna move on now to our main topic, which is about trouble with the IRS. And I'm going to handle this in several different categories. So here's my basic outline. I want to talk about what causes trouble. Like, when are you likely to trigger some attention from the IRS? What happens when you do trigger attention? There's two major categories. One is you might be audited, that does not happen very often, though. What happens far more often is that you get a letter. One of the common types of letters, what we call the CP 2000 letter, it's just an IRS code, but there's other types of letters. So we'll talk about that. Will it go away? The statutes of limitations. There's various levels of seriousness for problems with the IRS. And then we're gonna talk about common things that trigger trouble and what to do about those. What's the worst case scenario and what you can do about it if you have trouble. So jumping right in, what causes trouble? So common triggers for trouble with the IRS, the number one is math errors and typos. And that's the most frustrating for a lot of people because you realize, oh my goodness, the IRS sent me a letter. First of all, I've gotten letters from the IRS for both myself and clients. It's a bad day, right? You get this letter in the mailbox, you don't even want to open it. You start reading your Bed Bath & Beyond coupons in detail because you don't want to read the IRS letter. But a lot of them are not really very serious, but this one's frustrating math errors and typos so always check your math it's not worth the trouble to have to deal with all that angst that pain in your stomach and then realize oh no i transposed a couple of digits that's the most common reason for hearing from the irs other reasons maybe you start a new business and you don't do everything right Um, retirement plan problems either you set it up wrong you contributed too much or you forgot to take your required minimum distributions we're going to get into all these in more detail employment taxes If you hire someone and then you don't pay your social security taxes, that can cause trouble. Basis misunderstandings. Now, a lot of people that I talk to don't have any idea what basis means. I bet you guys do because basis is very important in certain assets like houses. Um, And again, talk more about it later. This is just sort of the outline, but basis is basically what you've already paid tax on. So for example, with your house, if you spend $100,000 to buy a house, and then you sell it later for $125,000, you don't pay tax on $125,000. You don't even have to think about any of it as gain except the 25,000, because 100,000 is the basis of your home. So again, more about that later. Of course, everything is more complicated. Um, under-reporting, that means like you filed your tax return, but you didn't tell them about all the money you made. That's a serious problem. underpaying maybe you told them how much money you made, but you didn't pay all the taxes you owed. And then we've got other people's problems. If you have a spouse, a former spouse, or a business partner who does something that's not quite right with taxes, that can cause trouble. So these are the major um, general categories of what causes problems. First of all, we already started talking about math errors and typos. So one of the most important things to understand is that the IRS, like all the rest of us, uses computers. And you'll probably notice that they've strongly encouraged all of us to e-file in recent years. I'm old enough, I remember filling out my tax return in pencil, erasing my mistakes, and then I'd take it to the office where there was an electric typewriter, type it up. Nobody does that anymore, right? Either you have a tax person, they use tax software, or you use something like Tax Act or TurboTax or something. You type everything in, then you click a button to file it. It gets sent to the IRS. The IRS runs it through their computers. So anything that a computer can catch, it will which means for example, a math error. Another thing it means is that um, if I I get a, let's say I have a day job, I work for Schwab, I don't, but that's an example. Schwab sends me a W2, it says I made $65,000. If I type in $64,000, the IRS is gonna catch that. You know, they are very understaffed. So anything that people have to think about might slip by, but anything that a computer can catch it will. And remember that when you get a W-2 or a 1099 from somebody, whether it's from your employer or from somebody you do consulting for, or whether it's a brokerage firm or bank statement or a mortgage statement, when you receive that form, the IRS receives the exact same form. So when I type in my salary or my mortgage payments, they already know. Now, if that seems like a bit of an inefficient system, you could be right. Um, But they already know. So if I say I made $65,000, they already have a copy of my W-2. So, and their computer's going to match that up and say, okay, you know, Schwab or Starbucks or wherever says Heather earned 65,000. Heather says she earned 64,000. The red lights go off. I get a letter. So keep that in mind. Anything a computer can catch, it will. Don't go down because of a silly error. You want to proofread. If possible, have somebody else proofread. I recently transposed digits in something sort of important, my employer ID number. Very easy to do, right? It's like a nine digit number. You're typing it fast, very easy to do. So proofread things. And then here's how you fix this one. If you get a notice about it and they're right, fix it, apologize, pay the difference, and don't do it again. You'll notice I've got four quick steps here and I'm not gonna dwell on them because you don't wanna dwell on these things. What you don't wanna do is receive a letter in the mail set it aside because your stomach hurts, read it too slowly, not understand it, call your tax person, find out she's on vacation because tax season is over and let it go on and on and on. What you want to do is read the letter, say, "Ah, I did that. I'm never going to do that again. Fix whatever needs fixing, pay the money and get over it. Okay, because trouble with the IRS is a drag. But if we multiply it by making ourselves miserable about it, it gets worse and worse. So one of my main messages today here is a lot of things are fixable. So find out what the problem is, fix it, move on and be cheerful again. All right. Second item on my list of things that often go wrong is new businesses. Now, I think this one is particularly relevant for a lot of you. Maybe you've had another career. You decide, oh, my retirement career is going to be real estate. Maybe you're young and starting out, could be any number of reasons, but many, many real estate professionals are small business people running their own business, and there's a lot of things you need to know that you don't necessarily learn along the way. So first thing, know when you are in business. Um, I realize that might sound a little silly, but maybe you've had a job for a long time. All of a sudden, you've got your real estate license, you're selling houses. You are a business person, whether you know it or not. Or let's say it's not quite that big a step. Maybe you're not selling a house yet, but you've become an assistant to an appraiser and she sends you a 1099. As soon as you get a 1099, you're a business person. Or as soon as you start doing any kind of work as an independent contractor, a consultant, basically anybody who's earning money and not getting a W-2 from a regular employer is in business. Um, There are a lot of different forms. You may be a sole proprietor or an independent contractor, a 1099 worker. By the way, all three of those first things are basically the same thing. Um, You may form a partnership, an S-corp. You might form an LLC. Those things, though, they can be smart for tax reasons and liability reasons. It can be smart to start an LLC, but it's not the difference between being in business and not being in business. As soon as you drive an Uber car or sell an article to a real estate magazine, as soon as you get a check for any kind of money and you're not getting a W-2 and you're not having taxes withheld, you're in business. You don't have to wait till you start your LLC. You may be a sole proprietor for your whole career. And by the way, what a sole proprietor means is you're a business person who did not set up one of these other forms, who did not form an S-Corp or a partnership. And again, totally fine. One of the main reasons to form an LLC or an S-corporate partnership, one of the main reasons is for liability. And in your business, liability may be very important. You know, let's say, you know, something, maybe you're fixing up rental houses, somebody gets hurt. You would rather not have them sue you personally. Better if they just sue your company. That could be a good reason to set up an LLC. But for tax purposes, they're not that different. For tax purposes, All of these are what we call flow through entities. That means that if I'm an LLC and my business earns income, that income flows right through to my personal tax return. So for tax purposes, most of these don't vary very much from being a sole proprietor. Ooh, we get our poll question.
2: So I'll be quiet for a second so you can finish your poll question. I wanna make sure you get credit. Gonna peek at the questions. Okay, I hope everybody's answered the poll question. I have to do a lot of continuing ed myself, so I know how important that is.
1: All right. So moving on. How do we know we're in business? As I said, as soon as you earn any money that somebody's not withholding taxes from, that you're not getting a W-2 from, you're immediately in business. And you might not have realized you kind of needed to make that transition. So what else makes you in business? You need to act professional. The IRS has a separate category for hobby versus business. Bad news, if it's your hobby, your expenses are not tax deductible. You still have to report all your income. So here's a little example. Let's say you knit sweaters. Everybody loves your sweaters. Mostly you give them away to family, but you thought, oh, I'm gonna sell a few on Etsy or something like that. Any income you receive is taxable income and you have to report it. But if it's a hobby, um, you don't get to deduct your expenses. So how do you know the difference between a business or a hobby? There's not a fine line for the IRS. Um, it helps a lot if you've earned a net income three out of the last five years. That makes you seem more like a business person. But that's not a hard um, line. The main thing is act like a business person. Do what you're supposed to do. Act professional, You know whether it means have a website, um, set up a business um, uh, form if you want to, but treat it like a business. So that's true for your real estate business also. Make sure you're acting like a real estate professional. Um, Know the rules, keep good records. In most cases, small business people file a Schedule C with their um, tax returns. There are a few exceptions. If you're a farmer or you're in the farm business, it's Schedule F, that makes sense for once. Schedule F for farming. And real estate sometimes is on Schedule E. That's a little confusing which things are Schedule E and which are Schedule C. But most business people fill out Schedule C. Now, if you're in business, know the rules, read the instructions and follow them. If someone else is doing your tax return for you, they're probably gonna know how this works. Um, But if you're doing it and you're using TurboTax or something like that, also it's gonna ask you questions about your business, read the instructions, answer the questions as well as you can, follow all the instructions, report all your expenses. Okay, next big topic, retirement plan problems. RMD failures can be a big problem with the IRS. RMD stands for required minimum distribution. If you turned 70 and a half years old before 1231 of 2019, you have RMDs. Um, If you were not 70 and a half by then, but you're 72, then you're gonna have required minimum distributions from any retirement plans you have. Or you can be any age if you have an inherited IRA. Let's say your grandfather died, left you his IRA. That's very nice but you have required minimum distributions from that, even though you're not old. So knowing the rules for required minimum distributions are very important because if you don't take the distributions you're supposed to, there's a 50% penalty for the amount you're supposed to have taken. So let's say again, your grandfather died, you should have taken $1,000 out of your your inherited IRA this year. If you didn't take that $1,000 out, you're supposed to pay a fine of $500. So the, the penalties for RMD failures are very high. Now, is it fixable? Yeah, it usually is. But you want to be alert. Again, if the IRS sends you a notice and says, hey, we think you should have taken money out of your RMD, you want to, re- you want to respond quickly and get it done. Other retirement plan problems, over contributions. I see this frequently with clients, largely because the contribution rules are quite confusing. So one thing that happened to a client of mine recently is Um, He's married, he and his husband both make good money. Uh, One of them actually is a realtor. And so they have, um, for example, they have adjusted gross income between them of over $200,000. He's been gradually contributing to a Roth IRA for the last couple of years. Well, guess what? You can't do that. Um, For a married couple, I've forgotten the exact uh, uh, limit, but if your income is over a certain level, you are not eligible to contribute directly to a Roth IRA. And the limit is even much lower to contribute to a traditional IRA. So make sure you know the limits and don't over contribute. Um, and if you are an employer and you're withholding money from people's paychecks to put into a 401k and you're not reporting it properly, again, that can definitely cause trouble with the IRS. Now, I'm a little suspicious that I'm not seeing anything in Q&A. So I would love to believe it's just because I'm being totally clear, but I also want to make sure everybody's there and that this is making sense. So. If, you, if there is anything you'd like more info on, go ahead and put a note in Q&A. It'll, it'll let me know you're alive, which I do appreciate by the way. Okay, so just moving along here, under-reporting and underpaying. I think this is an interesting topic because it's one of many things that is not exactly what you might expect. Like it's painful to pay taxes, right? And it can be difficult. Like maybe you're not entirely liquid. Oh good, we got a question. Oh good, thanks Nancy. At least I know you're out there. And I love that people are not stuck. Oh, and thank you. Someone looked it up and said 140,000 is the single person income limit for Roth IRA contribution in Michigan. Ah, interesting. I think for a single person, it's 144, I think. It's different for um, uh, married people. It's higher for married people. In any case, it's easy to check. Um, I would check it, sorry, but I'd have to stop sharing for a minute. Oh, somebody says, I have a SEP IRA. Is this something you'd recommend? Okay, now I'm getting lots of questions. Thank you for letting me know you're alive. Oh, and somebody says, can I discuss the benefits of using a Roth conversion? All right, so here's what I want to say about those last two questions. They're great questions. Roth conversions and SEP IRAs, great questions. They're pretty much outside the scope of today, but I would be happy to come back another time and talk about things like that. Also, I sometimes do talks for the National Association of Realtors So I know some of you are probably members of that. And we've talked about topics like that. So um, if you want to like, you know, lobby them to to talk more about retirement plans in general, that would be great. Okay, I am going to move on because I know you'll also be disappointed if I don't get through everything I said I would. So moving on about underreporting and underpaying. Interestingly, the IRS takes it a little more seriously if you underreport. So underreporting means you don't file every year or you didn't report everything. Tell you a quick story about that. About five years ago, I spent one season working for um, TurboTax, the company Intuit. I was what they call a um, credentialed tax expert. I sat at home even before the pandemic. I just sat here from about six in the morning till about midnight, and I answered people's questions from all over the country who were doing their own taxes on TurboTax. It was fascinating. Everybody had a different problem. But one lady called me from, she lived in San Francisco, and Bay Area salaries in the tech sector can be very, very high. So she and her husband both worked for technology companies. Their base salary came to about 700000 Then they also had lots of income from um, investments. And so she said they had filled out all their TurboTax stuff. They were ready to file. They got one more statement from Merrill Lynch showing about $2,000 in interest and dividends from Merrill Lynch um, Investments. And she said, at that point, I just figured we have paid enough. So I didn't add it in. Big surprise, she got a letter from the IRS. Because as I said, the IRS already knows everything that's been reported to you on a statement, they got a copy of that statement. So Merrill Lynch told the IRS, the San Francisco couple made X dollars in dividends and interest. Immediately, she has a problem. So her saying, oh, I thought we've paid enough. No, you don't get to say that. You have to report absolutely every source of income. That's the law. So you have to report everything and you also have to file every year. So the, then there's this also this problem underpaying. So maybe you either didn't pay enough at the end of the year or you didn't pay enough withholding and estimated taxes along the way. Those can be an issue. But again, I want to stress that underreporting, or not reporting is a pretty large problem. The penalties for not reporting, so the penalties for not filing a tax return every year, are about five times as high as the penalty for not paying as much as you are supposed to on time. And the reason I stress that is, let's say you earned money this year, but for some reason you're not liquid, you know, like maybe you had Income of $100,000, but your husband got sick, you spent it all on medical care, you don't have any cash to pay your taxes, you're stressed out for all kinds of reasons, and that's exactly the kind of situation where people say, oh no, I just can't face my tax return. I don't have money to pay my taxes, I'll think about it later. It's very upsetting, you know, it's no fun to be broke, but the fact is the right thing to do is file the tax return, tell the truth about everything that you're supposed to, and then admit it, hey, I don't have the cash right now. You can work out a payment plan if you need to, but not filing carries a big penalty. They don't like you to get behind on filing. So keep that in mind. (laughs) Oh, here's a question. What about crypto? Does the government get a copy of that investment? Very timely question. Crypto is kind of a big deal right now. Um, Excuse me. Crypto by its nature is pretty unregulated. I mean, we've all kind of been reading the news. They may or may not know. However, there is a checkbox currently on on the tax form. There is a checkbox that on the front page that just says something like, did you um, participate in cryptocurrency in any way? They wanna know, did you buy any? Did you sell any? Did you invest any? And for now you're supposed to check the box. Usually things are not taxable until you actually sell them and make a profit. It's likely right now, if you hold crypto, you probably have a loss, but none of that is really the issue with that checkbox right now. You just got to check the box. If you dealt in crypto at all, the government just kind of wants to know right now, who's involved in this? So tell the truth again, if you're involved, there may be no taxes involved, but do check the box. You got to tell the truth about crypto. Okay. We'll get back to questions later. um, And because I want to make sure we get through things. so what happens? That's our next question. What happens? Like, how do you know you have trouble with the IRS? There's two basic ways, audits and letters. As I said, letters are much more common, but audit is like a really scary word. And we all hear that. And it does happen sometimes. So a little more about audits. Um, This is an article from a magazine called Financial Planning has an online financialplanning.com. And from 2018, they said the number of tax returns examined drops every year. To the point where at that point in 2018, they were um, auditing less than half a percent of all tax returns. That went down in 2019. It went down the next few years as well, although my statistics are not as up to date. It did continue to go down. The IRS does finally have a bit of a budget increase where they're trying to hire some people so they can look at more tax returns. So, and if that seems upsetting to you, by the way, it shouldn't because you and I are telling the truth. We're honest. We're also not fabulously wealthy. And a lot of what has been neglected over the years is the fabulously wealthy have not been audited. So don't necessarily squirm and be upset when you hear that there's going to be more IRS agents on the job. Ideally, they're going to audit those billionaires who are not paying taxes, and that's going to take some of the pressure off of us working people. So that could be good. But for now, the number of people who have been audited has gone down very, very low. This is a picture of audits from 2010 just to 2017. You'll notice very downward. Um, Now, what has gone up is matching notices. That's another word for those letters I'm talking about. And the matching notice in particular is the one called the CP2000. That's the one where it says, hey, Merrill Lynch says we paid you $10 in dividends and you didn't report that to $10. Those statements don't match. So those have gone up. That's something again that a computer can do. It's much more efficient and and it's kind of easy to fix on both sides. So those have increased. Now, some buts. Although audit rates did go down, um, the things audit rate is higher for business owners, which again, I know that includes a lot of you, business owners. Um, people with schedule C businesses, that's people who are sole proprietors. And usually LLCs and S-Corps, you fill out a Schedule C. And if you have made more than $25,000 in gross receipts, that's before you deduct expenses, you're a little bit more likely to be audited than other people. Um, If you make more than $100,000 in net income from your business, or if it's cash intensive, this kind of makes sense, right? If you're running a bar and everybody's paying you cash or a taxi or something like that, you're a little more likely to be audited. In real estate, that's unlikely. People probably don't hand you cash for your house. Um, Or if you have a Schedule C business and you're showing a lot of losses, you're a little more likely to be audited. Now, if you're telling the truth, an audit is not a disaster, but it is a pain in the neck. So it's nice to avoid an audit if you can. And for real estate people, this is kind of particularly important. The IRS is actively scrutinizing people who show large rental real estate losses and especially if they're written off by taxpayers claiming to be a real estate professional. Now, that is a specific term, a term of art, real estate professional, and the IRS um, abbreviates it REP. Now, by the fact that you're here, I know that in some way or another, you are probably a real estate professional, but the IRS has a very particular definition of that, real estate professional, and mainly, It refers to people who really do real estate estate as their full-time gig. So for example, it's not uncommon at all for somebody to have a day job where they get a W-2 and maybe they own one or two rental properties on the side. The IRS does not consider that person a real estate professional. By the way, I'm one of those people. I do something else full-time. I own one little condo. I make a little money from it, little money. It's one small condo. I am not a real estate professional. So the rules are different for me than they are for a real estate professional. The main difference is I fill out a schedule E. E is for rental and royalty income. It's for people like me who are not real estate professionals. The amount of losses I'm allowed to deduct are quite small and limited. If I were a real estate professional, if I had a realtor's license, if I did it full time, there's a lot of other ways to prove that you're a professional. then I could put my income and expenses on schedule C for a business owner, as opposed to just a rental real estate owner. A business owner can deduct all of their losses. That has a lot of tax advantages. But if someone presents themselves as a real estate professional and they do not meet the criteria and they try to write off a lot of losses, that can be a big trigger to the IRS. So you want to be really careful about whether you really are a real estate professional. Um, Now, how do they know? The, this, there are a lot of rules like everything. There's long lists. But one of the main issues is to be a real estate professional under IRS rules, A, you need to spend more than 750 hours during the year doing real estate. And B, you need to do more of that than anything else. So again, those can be a little vague. You know, Maybe you're not keeping great records, but you know you spent a lot of time on your real estate business this year. But what I have heard is that if you have a W-2 from another job, you're very likely to be rejected by the IRS as a real estate professional. You're extremely likely to be audited. So, for example, I have a client. Um, she has a full-time job at Salesforce. That's one of our biggest companies here in San Francisco. She makes an enormous salary. You know, three or four hundred thousand dollars plus stock options. Then she has a couple of um, Uh, properties that she rents on the side. One's an Airbnb and one's a duplex house that she bought as investments. She tried to present herself a few years ago as a real estate professional, and she got rejected by the IRS. They said, no, you know, you get this W-2, you earn all this money from your day job. You are not a real estate professional. So that's the number one trigger. If you get a W-2 from another job, you probably don't qualify. Now, again, you still get to, you know, you still have to fill out all the information about your rental properties or whatever else you're doing, but you want to make sure whether you're meeting those rules. Now, I see some more questions come in. We'll take a second here to see how relevant they are. Uh, Somebody says, if you get audited once, are you more likely to get audited again in subsequent years? I think the answer is yes, which is one reason we really want to stay under the radar. Now, the reason I say I think is there's a lot of things that you know, the IRS would kind of rather we're not too sure about. <laughs> you know, They don't really want us to know how their algorithms work. But yeah, I do think that once you're on their radar, you may stay on the radar for a while. So that's why we want to make sure we do things right, including all the easy things like file every year, even if you don't have enough money to pay, always file, always report everything, always check your math, stay under the radar. Let's see, somebody says... How would you know about under or over reporting before the end of the year? Um, let's see. Under reporting means you didn't report all of this, all of the stuff, all the money you made. You know. So you, what you want to do is early in the year, um, companies, any company you work for, and any place you um, invest, they are required to send you statements by the end of the year. Uh, um, and by the end of the year, I mean, after the end of the year, by at least mid-February, most of them, they're required to report to you by January. So wait till you, um, you, know, till you catch up and you get all of those statements and then report everything. Now, another thing that sometimes happens, this has happened to a few of my clients, um, maybe they think they have all their information. We file their tax return in February or March or something like that and then their company sends a corrected 1099 and says, oh, we've actually paid you more. Then you have to file an amended tax return. It's a bit of a pain in the neck, but you know, basically you need to report everything you know about. If you work for multiple people, keep yourself a checklist and say, okay, did I get the 1099 from this? Did I get the report from that? You know, make sure, um, let's see. Somebody says, if you file jointly with your spouse and one of you is a real estate professional, Can you file as a real estate professional? Yes. Yeah. You qualify as long as one of you qualifies. Okay. And again, I'm getting some specific questions about retirement plans, which I'm not going to answer because it's really another whole big topic and it's not what we're doing today. It is important, but maybe another time. Um, Okay. So moving on, um, how to avoid problems. Again, I'm going to repeat myself sometimes because some of these things are super important know what information the IRS already has. Remember that anything a computer can check it will report all of your statements, bank accounts, brokerage statements, stock compensation, W2s, 1099s, report all of it. Um, and believe it or not, your ex-husband's social security number and your babysitter's phone number. Um, so there are certain things that the IRS looks at in particular. So for example, the reason I say ex-husband's social security number and of course everything is gender neutral now. so, Ex-wife, same thing, ex-spouse. That would be in a case where maybe you are reporting um, that you paid child support or that you are claiming a child as a a dependent. You know, these sometimes are issues in divorces. Let's say you have one child or you have multiple children. Maybe you and your ex-spouse agreed on who's going to report the children as dependent, who's going to get the child tax credit for these people. But um, if one of you you know, reports it, and then the other person reports the same child, the IRS is going to match up those social security numbers, you know, and they're going to say, for example, if you claim child tax credit, but your ex-spouse has already claimed a tax credit for the same child, it's not going to work. You're going to get bumped out of the system. They are going to check those social security numbers for both your ex-spouse and the child. The computer's going to check those. If there's a problem, it's going to get rejected. So you're not going to get away with two people claiming a tax credit for the same child, for example. And when I say babysitter's phone number, that's because child care, there are tax credits for childcare, but um, they scrutinize it kind of closely. They don't want you just saying you paid somebody for childcare when you didn't. So information about that you need to particularly report carefully. Okay, hey, check your math, always keep records. I know these things are super important for you people in particular. Because probably you drive a lot for business. So always keep track of your mileage. And by the way, when you fill out your tax forms, it says, how many business miles did you drive this year? And then it says, do you have documentation for this? You need to say yes. And then it says, is it written? You need to say yes. Now, maybe you didn't write it down last year. Start writing it down immediately because you need to say yes, that you have written documentation. Any way at all that you want to keep track of that is fine. Some people have a little paper notebook in the uh, glove compartment of their car. They, you know, jot down the date where they went, why it was a business thing, how many miles. Some people have an app. I understand there's lots of good apps, some of them probably particularly for your business, where you can keep track of business mileage. But you do need to keep track. Maybe you have a spreadsheet, whatever it is. Maybe you write it down on a slip of paper and throw it in a shoebox. (laughs) That'll take more time to organize at the end of the year. But whatever works for you, you need to keep records of your mileage, the driven for business. You also need to keep records of your business expenses. If you take someone out to dinner to talk about real estate, keep your receipt. If for some reason the restaurant didn't give you a receipt, the next best thing is a log or a diary. So in other words, like jot down on your calendar. I took Dave to the Steak and Shake. We talked about the property at 32nd Street. I spent $80.95. Um, witnesses are good too. Maybe you took your assistant to dinner. He remembers what you, you know, what you ate and what you spent, but keep some kind of record. The more written records, the better, the more official receipts, the better. And again, the method isn't that important. Like I tend, my printer doesn't work anymore. So I tend to keep everything in file folders on the computer. And if I have a business meal, you know, I charge it on my credit card and I say, send me an email of the receipt. I save that email. That's fine. I don't have to have a paper receipt, but I do need some record of what I spent on business. So always, always get records and keep records. Don't tell yourself, oh, I'll catch it up later because you're not going to remember later. I have a great memory and I promise you, you're not going to remember how much you spent on dinner in June. Okay. Then what happens when the, oh,
2: we have another um, poll question. Be sure to answer your poll question and I see I have a couple of things. Okay, (laughs) somebody says, they're used to
1: answering poll questions, all right. Um, Somebody says, can you take the basic mileage deduction? Aha, okay, that's a little bit of confusion there. Um, So you can definitely take the mileage deduction as opposed to writing off all the expenses related to your car, but you still need to keep track of mileage. And by the way, I do suggest that you just take the basic mileage deduction. It's pretty high right now, forgotten the exact number, but it's at least 50 cents a mile. It's pretty, I think it's even, maybe even more than 60 cents a mile. It's the highest it's ever been because gas prices are very high. So, yeah, it's a good idea but to take the basic mileage deduction, but you still need to know how many miles you drove. Okay. Um, You need to know, I drove 10,000 miles this year for business, and then you multiply that by that factor of 50 cents or 60 cents or whatever it is. That's a great thing to do, but you still need to know the exact number of miles. Now, someone else says, for business mileage, somebody said we could keep track of mileage for six months and then just double it. Um, I'm going to pretend you didn't say that. The person who said that, I hope they whispered, because I know people have to make estimates sometimes, but... That frankly is not legal. Now, we all have to take shortcuts and make estimates sometimes, but um, don't tell the IRS that's what you did. Say, yes, I kept records. Yes, I have written records. You are supposed to track all of your miles. And let's see, one final related question. Somebody says, is there an annual limit on miles? No, the only limit is, are you telling the truth? What do you really drive for business? Like, let's say you live in Michigan, you own a property in New Mexico. Maybe once a year, you drive to New Mexico to check on those properties. You know, that's going to be thousands of miles. As long as it's legit, and that's really why you went on that trip, then yeah, um, you know, then that's legitimate business mileage. It's not a question of the number of miles. It's, is it real? (laughs) Did you really do what you said you were going to do? Okay, so now we get into what happens when the IRS disagrees and says, hey, um, we have we think you have a problem. They're going to send you a letter, usually. They're going to probably, um, what's interesting, they're going to send you a letter and or they may tell you you're going to have an audit. Now, if they send you a letter, first of all, don't panic. That's one of the first things people often do. Oh no, there's a terrible problem. And a lot of people also are quick to assume, oh, I made a terrible mistake. I don't know what to do. It's possible you didn't make a mistake. Possible they made a mistake. And yeah, I have seen that happen, that they make a mistake. Or I've also seen it happen that sometimes a client will come to me and their former tax preparer made a mistake. Tax preparers are human too. Laws change all the time. It's not that difficult to make a mistake. But there are ways you can fix it. So one thing is, keep in mind, it may or may not be you. And the reason that's important is, I think a lot of us tend to go right into a spiral. Oh, no, I'm a failure. I'm going to go to jail, you know might not even be your fault. So you need to face up to it, figure it out. Now, another thing, when you get one of these letters, it will tell you exactly what to do. So all those days that it was sitting unopened on your desk because you were so afraid, you didn't even know what the next step is. The letter will tell you exactly what they want you to do. Very often, the letter will say, if you need more time, call this phone number. That's the first thing you want to do, call that phone number. Because the letter will also say something like, and let's see if I have a picture. Yeah, the letter will also say something like, if you don't respond by X date, we'll assume we're right and we'll send you a bill or something like that. Let's see specifically, this is a real letter. I blocked out the people's names. This is a real client that came to me. You can see the letter was dated 2019. It was about their 2017 taxes. You'll notice up here, it says CP 2000. Um, so it was about their 2017 taxes. What happened with these people was they work in California. They get a lot of stock compensation from their company, but they had hired somebody in Tallahassee, Florida to do their taxes. He just wasn't familiar with how um, employee stock works. It's pretty complicated. I realize that's probably not your issue. Um, So we're not going to dwell on exactly what their problem was. But as you can see, the IRS wrote to them and said, hey, you owe us more than $35,000. That's an ugly letter to get. But what it says, you'll notice, we received information from third parties such as employers or financial institutions. So what had happened in this case was E-Trade sent ordinary forms to the government, but there was another form from E-Trade that never got to the government. But E-Trade sent one saying, hey, these people had stock worth X dollars. They didn't get the amended statement that said it's really not worth that much. We were able to work it out. But the problem was, again, information from third parties. It doesn't match. That's why this is called a matching notice. And then they say, um, if you need more time to respond, contact us here. That's the first thing you do. You call that number and say, I need more time to respond, because it could take some time to work it out. And also, you wasted a few days not opening the letter, right? And you got to call this tax person probably to get help. Maybe. You could do it your own, yourself. But if you are if you want to hire somebody to help you, maybe they're busier on vacation. So you want more time. And then you'll notice, if you agree, because sometimes they are right and you just say, oh yeah, darn it. You need to complete, sign, and date it. Um, Both spouses need to sign. You don't have to file an amended return. You just go ahead and sign it, date it, and mail in the money. So that's how you solve it if, if you do agree that they were right. If you don't agree, you'll notice again, it tells you exactly what to do. Complete the response form on page 13, send it with a signed statement explaining your disagreement, yada, yada. So the reason I dwell on the small print here is Very often, people get a letter from the IRS and they just go blank and they call me and say, I don't know what to do. And then I get to act like a psychic. I'm saying, well, I think we should do this. I think we should call this phone number. I think we should look at page 13. In other words, it really tells you what you need to do if you can be calm enough to sort of read it and follow the instruction. So the first thing is call the phone number, ask for more time. Second thing is read it carefully, see if you agree. And in this particular case, what happened was complicated. That whole stock thing, it it does get complicated. So in this particular case, I think these people were right to call me and say, let's work this out together because they didn't know why on earth they might owe $35,000. In some cases, it's not that complicated. In some cases, they're just, you know, oh, I forgot to report my Merrill Lynch dividends. You know, silly me. Let me fill out page 13, sign the form, pay the money but read it, figure out what you need to do and figure out if you want to ask for more help. Now, I am going to ask a question of our organizers because I see we're all, well, I haven't been talking for an hour, but we're almost an hour into your meeting and I want to make sure that I'm pacing this correctly. So if one of the organizers would let me know what time ideally you would like me to stop talking, that would be great. I'll look for that in chat. All right, next question, will it go away? So, you know, that head in the sand approach is something a lot of people take. Well, maybe if I don't answer, they'll forget about it. Sometimes some things do get forgotten about, but usually not. So what is the statute of limitations? Excuse me, one second. Somebody says 1015. Okay, good. That's very helpful. So um, we got about 20 minutes left. All right. The IRS has three years from the time you file to audit your, routine, your return, if it's expects a good faith error, like, I forgot to report a dividend. They have three years to audit me. However, Michigan, states vary for state taxes. So in Michigan, they have up to six years. So don't forget about that. And that's just for an honest mistake, up to six years. The IRS also has six years if they think you underreported your gross income by 25% or more. So any kind of big mistakes, longer time, And this one's important. In the case of fraud, there is no statute of limitations. They can investigate your whole tax return, not just the part that they think might have been fraudulent. And again, no statute of limitations on fraud and no statute of limitations regarding failure to file your return. So remember I said earlier that not filing is actually taken more seriously than not paying.
2: Um, So even if you're broke, file your tax return. Okay, excuse me one second. I'm going to say something to your organizer. She says we have a
1: five minute break at 1015, but we're planning on a two hour meeting to 1115. So I'm sorry I didn't clarify this before the meeting, but do you want me to keep talking after the, the that or do you want me to finish up and get out of your hair. So um, again, I apologize to participants, but I want to know um, exactly how long would you like me to keep at this. Thank you so much. Okay, moving on. Um, so Re- filing a return is very important. They can audit you forever if you didn't file a return. And second, fraud, like I know I didn't commit fraud, fraud, but there's always the chance that for some crazy reason, the IRS thinks I committed fraud. So for that reason, I keep my records forever. People are always asking, how long do I have to hold on to my tax returns? Or when can I throw away my receipts? Things like that. I keep the basic tax return forever. Now, if you're saying to yourself, I don't have that kind of filing space, I certainly feel for you and I understand that. So personally, I bought a really good scanner a few years ago and anything relatively old that I'm tired of holding onto in paper, I scan the basic tax returns and I keep those you know, in a, an e-file, a file on my computer. But don't be quick to throw things away because these statutes of limitations are important. And so you're not necessarily out of the woods just because like a year went by and you didn't hear from them. Okay, as far as keeping records, the IRS says keep records for at least three years, keep records for seven years for these specific situations, worthless securities or bad debt deduction, those are relatively uncommon. Um, But keep records indefinitely means forever, keep records forever if you don't file a return, keep records forever if you file a fraudulent return, and employment tax records for at least four years. So again, like all these details about three years, et cetera, my answer is keep the important stuff forever and anything you don't have room for scan it. Um, a lot of people have in their heads, Oh, seven years, Um, seven years is not a magic number. So I want to sort of dispel that. All right. Keep your tax records, keep your entire file of tax stuff for at least three years. So that means like, even if you know, you did everything right, keep the file with the the actual receipts and the mileage logs at least three years, all that level of detail. After that, and if you have any worries, keep it longer. And then after that, scan the old returns, at least the form 1040, and save electronic copies. Okay, mistake sizes. There's basically three different levels of um, types of errors, small, big, and fraud. Small is things caused by typos and math errors and misunderstandings and forgetting to claim some income, but it's less than 25% of your income, and no bad intent. It's always a weird item, right? How do you know what I intended? You're just some IRS guy in a suit. What do you know what I intended? Oddly enough, there are a few situations where the IRS tries to get inside what you're thinking. So, and that's where fraud comes in. Fraud means you you knew there was a problem and you deliberately misstated something. That's obviously illegal. Um, so one thing you want to do is make sure you are not deliberately misstating anything or that in any way somebody could think that you are so for example like making up your mileage numbers and knowing you're making them up technically that's fraud you're not supposed to do that you're supposed to keep track for sure so um you know do everything in good faith keep track of as much as you can sometimes you are going to have to estimate But be as accurate as you can, be as honest as you can, make sure that your intent is not to cheat the IRS. So these things are all considered small problems. If you didn't intend it, and the mistake is less than 25% of your gross income, it's a small error. If it's big, that means you understated your income by more than 25%, but you really didn't do it on purpose. Then we get into fraud. That means you have tax due and you had a fraudulent intent. You did this on purpose intentional wrongdoing with the specific purpose of evading a tax. And remember, no statute of limitations. They can check this out for the rest of your life. And also criminal penalties are possible in addition to just saying, hey, you owe more tax. Now, I realize this probably doesn't apply to you, that you're not deliberately trying to cheat anybody on your taxes. But it is good to be aware of how serious this is so that we can make sure not only do we never do this, but we never make anybody think we're doing this. Badges of fraud. These are specific rules that the IRS considers, you know, suggestions that you might be committing fraud. If you omit income, if you claim false dependence, let's say you make up a child, or you and your ex-spouse agree who's going to claim the child, and then you try to get away with, you know, claiming her anyway, um, or claiming a false dependent. I would say hundred percent of new clients who come to me ask if they, if their dog is a dependent, if they can write off their dog. The answer is no. You can save your tax person a lot of time by not bringing up the dog. Your dog is not your dependent. You do not get a tax deduction for your dog. But honestly, 100% of people think that you do. If you put your dog's name on your tax return, that's fraud. So do not do it. Don't even talk to your tax person about it. Don't do it. Um, Your dog is not a dependent. Okay, if you make a false statement during an exam, that means you're getting audited. Somebody calls you or writes you a letter or comes to your house and you lie to them. That's not okay. If you attempt to hinder or obstruct the exam, maybe you give them the wrong address or you don't show up for an appointment or something. Ignoring the advice of a tax professional, like maybe you hire a CPA, that person says, no, you cannot write this off. This is not a business expense and you do it anyway. That tax person has to protect their own find-in. So you know, as a tax professional, if I'm advising somebody about a very serious issue, you can bet I'm keeping notes and I'm probably going to put anything important in writing. Like I will send an email saying to that woman who didn't report her Merrill Lynch money, you know, I'll send an email saying, yes, you absolutely need to report this. I've got it on record. I told her to do that. If she doesn't report it anyway, even though a professional told her to, she's in trouble. And if you do not file on time because you're trying to evade tax. So all of these are clues to the government that fraud may be involved. Um, what's the penalty for fraud? 75% of the underpayment related to it. So if I underreported my income on purpose with bad intent by, say, $100, I have to pay that $100. I also have to pay another $75 in penalty. Plus, you always pay interest if you're you're, uh, paying late for any reason. Okay, that was like the really scary stuff, the fraud stuff that, again, you're not doing that. But be careful that you don't do it by mistake. So what do you do when there's a problem? When you've heard from the IRS, number one, stay calm. Remember, it might not be you could be a mistake. So stay calm. Um, Also, people don't read well when they're calm. (laughs) People sometimes call me and say, oh, no, I got audited. We look into it. No, you didn't. You just got a letter. Let's just fix it. So stay calm. No, it might be them and not you read the letter, follow the instructions, talk to the IRS. Remember, they are people like when you call that phone number. Now, first of all, you're going to have to be patient. You know, we talked about the fact that um, the IRS now has clearance to hire a lot more people. One of the main reasons they need to hire more people is there are not enough people to answer the phone. So, right now, if you call with a question, it's going to take a while to get through. So, don't make yourself crazy. You know, make a cup of coffee, sit on hold for an hour, do the crossword puzzle. Don't go crazy. Know that it takes a long time to get through by phone. And that, again, is one reason why I want you to feel good when you hear these notices that they're hiring a lot more people. That's mostly to help you. Okay, that's for those of us who are trying to do things right. For those of you who like have questions and do your best, all this new IRS hiring is to help us. So you're going to talk to them. Then you're going to be organized and professional and act confident and courteous, particularly with small business people. One of the things they're looking for is, is this really a business person? Or is this somebody just trying to get away with writing off expenses? So you want to be clear all the time. Yes, I am a professional. What, regardless of whether or not you qualify under those real estate professional rules, you want to act professional, right? Like if somebody does actually meet you in person, wear a suit or at least wear long pants. You know, when that crypto fraud thing happened a couple of days ago, I looked at pictures. Those kids are all in shorts. I don't have a lot of confidence in people in shorts. If you wanna look like a business person, look like a business person and speak calmly, stay organized, produce documentation, you know, any anything along the way that makes you seem scattered and confused, it's not really gonna work in your favor. Act confident, of course, be courteous, don't be antagonistic. Um, remember that documentation is your friend, find all your paperwork. Uh, like maybe you have been just throwing receipts in a shoebox all year, that's fine. But before you talk to an IRS person or before you answer the letter, organize all those receipts in your shoebox. Um, you know, do whatever it takes to get organized, know where your paperwork is, you know, be aware that you might have to answer questions. And the more calm and sensible you sound, less panicked you sound, the better it's going to go. Ask for help if you need it. You know, maybe it's easy to answer the question yourself, but if you feel like you really don't understand, like those clients of mine who got the letter saying they owe $35,000 and they have no idea why. They were smart to reach out to a professional because that's an issue. Again, I'm in California. They worked in California tech companies. That's something I see all the time. But to them, it was a complete mystery. So there are a lot of times when you can save yourself a lot of time and trouble by hiring a professional. An EA, just as a quick aside, Um, is what I am. I'm an enrolled agent. That is a designation bestowed by the IRS. It means I passed a series of tests um, to show that I have tax knowledge. The reason I mention that is a lot of people kind of use the word CPA um, synonymously with tax professional. An EA and a lawyer, JD, and a CPA all have the same kind of rights as far as representing clients before the IRS in a problem. So any one of these designations is fine. Okay. Now, other things you can do, first steps, if if you realize there is a problem, but you just don't have the cash, work out a payment plan, and fix the problem fast as fast as you can, and don't do it again. So these are your top ten steps. You're gonna all the way from stay calm to don't do it again. Underreporting. So specifically now, how do we solve these problems? Underreporting. If your letter says you underreported income, first check the facts. If they're right, you did forget to report something. Pay the money, solve the problem. If they're wrong and they think you should have reported something and you think you shouldn't, um, write them a letter, attach documentation, and explain it as clearly and simply as you can. If they're right but you can't afford to pay, don't hide. Tell them, yep, you're right, but I don't have the cash. Figure out how to work out that underpayment. Okay, some specific problems. Um, Home office deduction, big one sometimes for small business people, right? home office deduction can be a very valuable deduction. If you work at home, and very likely you do if you're a business person, um, if you work at home, you may be able to deduct some of your home related expenses. Now, big issue, if you have an employer, so you get a W-2, you cannot deduct your home office. This doesn't seem fair right now because, you know, the last two years we've all been working at home, no matter who you work for you've been working at home, but if you have an employer and a W-2, your home office is not deductible, it's not fair, probably shouldn't be that way, when this law was passed in 2018, eliminating that, we didn't know about the pandemic, but only a business owner can deduct their home office. So if you are a sole proprietor, an LLC, a partnership, if you own a business, you can deduct your home office as long as you follow those rules. Um, Your records have to show that you use part of your home exclusively and regularly for business. So if you have a room at home that's your office, great, you know, and don't eat dinner in there and don't let the kids play in there. Okay. And don't like use that as your extra closet. Needs to be a place that's specifically for your business that you keep as a business office. Could be a very small room, could be a closet, that's fine. Could even in some cases be part of a room. Maybe you know half your living room is set aside, but it needs to be exclusively and regularly the used for your business. And it needs to be either your main place of business or a place where you deal with clients and customers regularly. So if you meet those rules, then the home office deduction is very helpful. Um, if by any chance you're questioned, and you might be, because home offices are kind of an audit trigger. Although I'll tell you also, I've claimed a home office for probably 30 years. I've never been audited personally. You know, I follow the rules. I do it right. I have a home office. I do work for myself. It's all cool. So don't be afraid to do it if you qualify, but do be aware that you need to follow the rules. So if by any chance you get audited, clean it up, make sure it's a dedicated office. Make sure you're really in business. That means you're not an employee of somebody else and you're not just doing a hobby. Organize everything. Be clear about what you spent and why it was relevant. So, home office expenses, for example, could include a part of your rent or a part of your mortgage interest. Definitely a part of your um, utilities. You know, let's say you have a ten a ten room house. One room is your office, and you pay thousand dollars a year for heating. hundred dollars of that is a business expense for your home office. You just divide the percentages. So that's the home office basis misunderstandings um basis misunderstandings can happen with a lot of things real estate in particular is what I know you're concerned with so for your personal residence or rental real estate you really need to know the basis basis is essentially what you've already paid tax on often that's the purchase price but more technically it's a purchase price minus selling ins- expenses plus capital improvements minus depreciation this is a little technical given that we're running out of time Anyway, but um, If you are in the business of buying and selling real estate, you probably want to talk with a tax professional about specifically how this works for you. Um, Or if you're in the rental business, also very important if you're renting um, apartments in any way or renting homes, because that's when depreciation comes in. Your personal residence, you do not depreciate. Depreciation is only for business properties, but your personal residence, your basis will be the purchase price plus capital improvements. So let's say you paid $100,000 for your house years ago. You're selling it for a million dollars now. You had a $900,000 capital gain in there, right? The first 250 is, doesn't even count. First 250 of capital gains on your personal residence doesn't count. If you're married, the first 500 doesn't count. But in my example, you've still got a big capital gain. But let's look at that. Your basis was 100000 because that's what you paid for the house years ago. But if you put in a new screen porch and you put in a new garage and you updated the solar panels, yada, yada, the money you have poured into the house over the years gets added to your basis. So that's why you want to keep track of that.
2: Excuse me a second while I look at some questions. Um, Okay, so in two minutes, we're going to take a five-minute break. Good to know.
1: And then I'm going to come back. That's also good to know. So I'm going to have more time to answer questions. That's nice. Okay, so I'll just try to finish up the basis part so then you can take your break. Um, So let's see. Basis. Yeah, this is important. You might be the only person who knows the basis in your real estate. So, for example, let's say your mother bought this house 40 years ago and she didn't keep the records. We didn't have scanning back then. You know, maybe the the real estate documents got burned up in a fire or she didn't know it was important to keep. So maybe you, there's no way to really prove what the basis in your real estate was. If you can't prove the basis, the IRS assumes it's zero. So you need to keep as good records as you can. In that example where you know the the original real estate sales documents burned up in a fire, try to recreate it however you can. Maybe you or your mother or whoever bought the house, maybe you have a check showing what you paid to somebody, try to recreate that and keep good records. Always keep good records of any capital improvements you make along the way, because the burden is on you to prove what the basis was in your house. Um, These are other types of basis that don't affect you as much like company stock. For your personal residence, your basis is the purchase price, plus the closing costs, plus any major improvements. For rental real estate, it's the purchase price plus all those minus accumulated depreciation. Depreciation can be a little bit of a complicated topic, but again, it refers to only rental properties or business properties. It does not refer to your personal residence. Um, Basis misunderstandings, the way you solve it is if the IRS asks questions, like everything else, you respond immediately, acknowledge the issue, and ask for more time. Gather up all your documents and records. And then, you know, if necessary, you file an amended return or you respond to the IRS letter.
2: Okay. Um, I think I need to be quiet now so you can take your break.
0: Okay, we're going to get started again. So, Heather, we had a few in-person questions that that we'd like to take a moment to ask.
2: Yeah, great, let's
0: do
1: it. By the way, I can't see you. I wish I could. I can't see you, but so go ahead and and talk. I can't call on someone, but please go ahead. Yes, Heather. Yeah. I
0: guess it's supposed to be. Supposed to
1: be on. Heather, can you hear me? Yes, I can. There, now
0: it is. All right. Thank you. My question is my CPA tells me that there is a standard. Maybe that's not the correct word for a home deduction. That the IRS, if you if you stay within this certain uh, deduction uh, level uh, or standard, then uh, there's a there's a very good chance you won't be audited or or um, challenged about your home office. Is that true?
1: Oh yeah, I think I know what you mean. Um, let me see if I have a note about that. Yeah. Um... No, I don't. Okay. But yes, for the home, home office deduction, there is a, let's see, what do they call it? Um, it's like the, the abbreviated version or something like that. Um, yeah. There's a term for it. They invented that a few years ago. Yeah. And it's much simpler. Now you still have to follow the rules, which means you still have to have a home office. Um, let's go back to that. Um, yeah. You still have to have a home office. You still have to be a business owner um and you have to use that home office exclusively and regularly for business but the way that works is you don't necessarily have to carefully measure everything and all that you can just say um I wish I did have notes up on it but up to a 1500 let's see it's up to 1500 I think you can it's a shortcut version of the home office and yeah it's a little simpler um one drawback to using that is You can't, if you use that standard home office deduction, you can't carry forward extra losses. So I'll explain that a little bit. Um, when you have business income, business net income, of course, you have to pay tax on it. If you have a business net loss, sometimes you can reduce your other income by that net loss, which is nice. That can be really helpful. Particularly, let's say you have a spouse who's earning a big salary your business is showing a loss, that loss reduces your overall um, taxes. But your home office, in general, home office deductions cannot create a loss. So for example, let's say my business, I I brought in $10,000 this year, I spent $10,000 on office supplies, so I've got net business income of zero, that's fine, I don't owe any taxes on my business. But if I spent $12,000 on office supplies, I could then take a $2,000 loss against other income. But if I've spent $10,000 on office supplies, so I've got zero net income, and then I want to claim a home office, I will not be able to show a loss from that home office and reduce other um, expenses. But if I'm doing the old-fashioned way, the home office, I can carry that forward. So maybe my home office deduction is another $3,000. I can't use it this year, but next year when I'm making more money, I can take that deduction. Now, if you do that standard $1,500 one, you don't get to carry it forward. So it's easier. Um, It probably does trigger less attention, but it has a few drawbacks as well. So yeah, good question. And um, oh, good. Somebody checked it out. Safe Harbor. Good answer. That's what it's called, the Safe Harbor. And she says 300 square feet at $5 per square foot. That's exactly right. That's why that $1,500 was in my memory. So thank you, Megan, for those details. Um, that's the safe harbor home office and yes it's easier but in some ways not as great who's next
3: okay my question is actually i have two questions the first one is if you use a specific credit card and you put all of your gas on that credit card Mm -hmm. um, but you don't have the actual receipts if you got audited would you be able to just print out your statement and show the gas
1: Um, like the gas stations where you pumped your gas, it was all on one credit card? Okay, so first answer to that, it's better than nothing, right? Anything's better than nothing. Um, And a lot of different types of receipts and documentation are helpful. Um, But one issue I want to deal with right away is if you keep track of all those gas expenses, that doesn't prove how many miles you drove. And as we discussed earlier, there's two ways that you can get a deduction for, your transportation if you're driving your own car there's two different ways one is um you can just take the standard mileage deduction and again that's something that i wish i checked recently i'm going to look it up right now standard mileage deduction in 2022 uh it's funny it it, it popped up for me in india that's not what we need to know (laughs) We'll get that in a second. Um, So taking the standard mileage deduction is usually a great idea. But to do that, you really need to know how many miles you drove. And so just keeping track of your gas expenses is not the same thing. Um, Now, the other way, if you don't want to take the standard mileage deduction, you can deduct actual expenses. But what you need to do for that, it's a lot harder. Like you need to know what did I, oh, good. Somebody put it in the chat. I bet somebody looked it up. Thank you. 58 cents for the first half of the year and 62.5 cents for the second half of the year. Thanks again, Megan. Um, So that's the highest it's ever been at 62 and a half cents per mile. That's pretty good. And it's so much easier than keeping track of your actual expenses, because if you keep track of actual business expenses for your car, first of all, you need to know what did you pay for your car? What percentage of time do you use that car for business? It needs to be more than 50% for this really to work. You need to figure the depreciation on your car. You need to know how much do you pay for every oil change, every tire rotation. You need to keep track of everything. It's a lot more work than just saying, hey, I drove 35 miles this year on business. I'm going to did up 62 and a half cents times 35 miles. So again, proving how much you spent on gas isn't really the issue for most people. I highly recommend doing the standard mileage deduction, which means keeping track of miles. Then to go back to kind of your other question, is a credit card statement good enough? The answer is, let's say you were keeping track of something else, like saying, oh, I know this is all business expenses because I only charge my office supplies on this credit card. It's better than nothing. It would be better to have the actual receipts from each time you bought something. Did you say you had more questions, the same yeah, person? I, I think you
3: answered my other question with the standard mileage deduction, but um, I was on the, um, I had the opportunity this year to pay off my vehicle, Good. and I was wondering, um, is it better to pay it off in a lump sum, or is it better to keep those payments as a write-off? But if you're using the standard mileage deduction, I don't think it really matters.
1: Correct. It doesn't matter. Okay. Yeah. Okay, who's next in real life?
0: Looks like that is all of it.
1: Okay, great, then I'm gonna look, we do have more questions in the Q&A, so let's look at some of those then. Um, Somebody says, if a husband and wife are realtors, can they both have a home office in the same house? Absolutely. It's very nice if you have a big enough house that you can each have a separate office, totally fine. Um, Somebody says, if you have two businesses, can you have one home office and one rented office? Um, The answer is yes. You know, as long as it's all legitimate and true, you can probably deduct both offices. Just again, keep in mind that your home office, it does need to be the main place of business for that business. It doesn't need to be a full-time business, but it does need to be your full-time, excuse me, does need to be that that office is where you do that business. But yeah, having two separate offices, fine. Let's see. This one looks question long in
3: person. I'm sorry, what? We do you have another question in person?
2: Oh, okay, go ahead.
3: Um, did you hear me? Can you hear me? No. Uh, it? Can you hear me? Yes. Sorry. So, I had a company send me a, a W9 for it should have been $1800, but it was a, they sent it for 180,000.
1: $180,000? No. Oh, and then no. they submitted it
3: twice, so it looked like it was 360000 oh. the And the IRS caught it, of course. Of course. Uh, so if I, uh, and actually, I think, uh, how do you catch something like that ahead of time before or, or send it? I mean, because it was a company, obviously, we, we deal with third parties. So I have no idea where the, it originated from.
1: Yeah. Um, Okay. So that's a really great example of a serious problem, something you got to fix, but it's not your fault. So at least it saves you all that guilt and fear, right? It's not your fault, but you do have to solve it. So I would immediately contact the company that issued the thing in error because they have to fix it. But I would also immediately contact the IRS. Now, did you get a letter from the IRS saying, hey, you owe us taxes on $360,000? Yes, you did. Okay, that that in a way, that's good that you got this letter from the IRS, because then you're going to follow those steps we talked about before you are going to call the phone number that says I need more time and then you're going to respond. You know, it does tell you exactly what to do. It'll say um, complete the response form and send it with a signed statement. So you're going to immediately complete the official form, fill out the statement, you know, and send a letter on your company letterhead. And make it very, very clear what happened. You know, you you tell them exactly what happened. Hey, they paid me eighteen hundred dollars. They made a mistake and said it was one hundred and eighty thousand. Just be very clear. Be very direct. Meet the deadlines. You know, so that you make sure you did everything you could do, and you were as clear as you could possibly be. And then also keep bugging the heck out of that company to do their part in fixing it. Thank you. Meet the deadlines. Okay, next question I have here is. Um, Oh, somebody, this is a good question. For personal residence basis. He says, can you draw a distinction between routine maintenance and capital improvements? The reason it's a good question is that's one of those things where, um, the, where the rules are sometimes do get a little fuzzy. So technically, um, capital, uh, capital improvement is supposed to be something that prolongs the life of the asset. Um, so it's more than a repair. know that's not that clear either so i can tell you that um if you google irs and capital improvements you will find um you will find the official document there's an irs publication for everything and you'll find the publication that's about houses and it will give you some more um details on that but one thing i know is painting is considered maintenance and i always bring this up when i teach this in income tax classes because painting is super expensive, right? If you paint your house on the outside, it's gonna cost you $10,000, $25,000, easy. Um, It's gonna be a lot of money. And so very often the distinction is, oh, routine repairs are small amounts, capital improvements are big amounts, but painting is very, very expensive. And yet the IRS specifically says, no, that's routine maintenance. So I would look at some details like that, but think about for yourself, does this, does this enlarge the house in any way? Does it improve it? Does it prolong its life? So again, it's a little bit of a gray area, but in very general terms, bigger things are capital improvements, smaller things are not. Replacing your windows is usually considered just repair and maintenance. Putting in an addition, a new room, a new roof is probably a capital improvement. see what else we have. Um, Somebody says, I believe when you sell a home, your gain on your personal residence if you've lived there at least two years isn't taxed. So do we need to worry about basis? Aha, okay. The answer is you are partially right. So there is this thing called the whole uh, personal residence exclusion. Tax professionals call it section 121. And it's pretty well known at this point. This is since 1996. If you sell your personal residence and you have lived there in at least two of the last five years, then the first 250,000 in gain is not taxed. And again, if you're married filing jointly, it's the first 500,000. But if you live in California, like I do, most people's gain is way more than 500,000 because our real estate tends to go up astronomically. And I don't, you know, in your situation, maybe house prices don't rise as fast in Michigan, but they do rise particularly if it's over time. You know, if you've owned this house for 40 years, you could very easily have a gain of more than $250,000. So yeah, you absolutely need to know your basis because that, that exclusion of gain, it's not complete. It's got a limit on it. So you need to know your basis. And then this person also asks, if you're taking a home office deduction, there would be some depreciation. That is correct. As I said, um, depreciation refers only to business property. However, once, um, you know, once part of your house or part of your apartment is your office, that part is a business property. So if your house, you know, if one of the rooms in your 10 room house is your office, you are going to be doing a little depreciation of that space. And that is going to be reducing the basis in your house over time. So good distinction about that. Yes, that once you've got a home office that
2: part of your house is a business property. Um, Let's see, someone else said, um, okay, some of these again are are specifically about retirement plans. I'll answer one that's sort of easy. Somebody says, what percentage of our income can
1: we contribute to a SEP IRA? I think that's what she's asking. Um, The answer is officially, if you are a business owner, You can contribute up to 25% of your net income from your business, but there are a few sort of circular calculations. So it ends up not really being 25%. It's really 18 point something percent. So what I would suggest if you want to contribute to a SEP IRA is wait till after the end of the year, find out what your net business income is, and then either have your tax professional or your tax software tell you, okay, exactly how much can I contribute? but it's roughly 20% of net business income. Um, Somebody says, if I work from home in a home office for my full-time W-2 position, ah, so can this person um, take a deduction for her home office? No. Okay, but then she makes it more complicated. Do I do my part? I also do my part-time real estate business from the same home office. Could I still claim it? Oh boy, that's a tricky question. Could I claim it for the real estate business? Oof. (laughs) That's a tricky one. Um, But I think yes, because I think you're going to still be meeting this requirement um, that you could deduct it because it's your principal place of business. But you also use it for another. You know what? That question is too hard. And I'm sorry to say that because it's a reasonable question, given that that's how a lot of people are working right now. They're working at home for a regular day job and maybe they're doing a part-time business on their own at the same time so i apologize for not having a really easy answer for that but i'm going to suggest if you have a tax professional please take them all the specific facts about that and have them answer that for you because that gets that gets a little too complicated and i know hate to make a promise um,
2: let's see what else is open um, looking through questions we have here. Um, (laughs) What do you do when nobody ever answers the phone number? They tell you to call Michael. I feel your pain.
1: Yeah, that that does happen at the IRS. It's really, really hard to get through on the phone. And so again, let's all celebrate the fact that they now have a budget to hire some new people. I promise you, some of those people are going to be answering the phone, but it is a serious issue that people do not answer the phone number at the IRS. I hear that all the time from professionals and others. Um, I think what it means is like, if it says you have to call that phone number to ask for more time, definitely do try to do it, even if it means staying on hold a long time, but also realize that like Maybe it also means you need to act even more quickly to fill out the form because maybe you were never really able to get them to say yes. You can have more time. It is it is very unfortunate, um, but just do do things more quickly. Get the get the thing you know get the thing resolved so that you don't need more time if at all possible. Um,
2: let's see. you maintenance. Somebody just wrote records. <laughs> the answer is yes. Keep records. Um, see if
1: we've got anything else and then we'll move on. Okay. I think that's it for questions at the moment, but do feel free to add more. Wait, one more new came in. Oh, somebody here says I'm a home inspector and a real estate agent. I use the same home office for both. Now, the crucial thing that that person doesn't make clear is, is he the business owner of both of those businesses, the home inspector and the real estate agent? If so, totally fine. But if one of those is a W-2 job, that's where it gets complicated. You know, if somebody else is employing him, that's where it's complicated. But two of your own businesses in the same home office, totally fine. Okay, Um, all right, let's move on with a few more topics then. Uh, RMDs. Now, again, this is not specific to real estate, but retirement plan problems are are important. So, failure to take your RMDs, as I said before, the penalty is awful. It's 50% of what you were supposed to take. RMD, again, stands for required minimum distribution. And again, those kick in for most people after you turn 72, or if you're any age at all and you have an inherited IRA, you have to take required minimum distributions each year. So, um, again, that's if, if you turn 72 after 1231 2019. Now, inherited IRAs, this is pretty common, and so it's worth looking at. And this, the rule changed recently. It used to be, if you inherit an IRA a few years ago, you could roll it into a new inherited IRA account, and then you could spread it over your life expectancy. So let's say your grandfather died, he was 85, um, you inherit it, you're 25. If you followed all the rules properly, You could then start taking that money out. You still had to start in the first year. But you could do it over your relatively very long life expectancy. That changed with the SECURE Act of 1231-2019. So what happens now is you don't necessarily have to take anything in any particular year. But if you inherited an IRA and the person died after January 1st of 2020, you have to get all the money out of there within 10 years. So you can split it into 10 parts, take one tenth every year, or you can take none of it right now. And at the last minute, 10 years from now, take it all out. So if you have an inherited IRA now, it might be worth working with a financial planner or a tax professional to figure out what works best for you. For example, let's say you're starting a new business this year. You don't expect much net income for the next couple of years, but then you're hoping in the long run, you're going to get rich. You're going to be really good at this business. Maybe you have an inherited IRA. If I had no income this year from my business and I had an inherited IRA, I'd take it all out right now, You know, depending on the size, not if it's millions and millions, but let's say it's seventy dollars or $100,000 and I have no other income. That's a perfect year. To take it all out. You're in a relatively low tax bracket. Get it over with. Pay the taxes while you're at that low bracket. And then you don't have to take any out 10 years from now when you're making a million dollars and it's taxed very highly. So that's some strategy about inherited IRAs. But in any case, you do have to follow the rules. So again, if it's your own, start after you're 72. If it's inherited, um, get it all out within 10 years. Now, if you don't, again, the scary penalty, but does that always apply? No, there are ways around this. So the way you fix it, it's called Form 5329 and it's called Additional Taxes on Qualified Plans and Other Tax-Favored Accounts. So this is... um, It's a two-page form. Only part of it is showing here. This is where you deal with all kinds of problems of over-contribution to IRAs or 401ks or not taking money out when you were supposed to. Yeah, so this is a part I've dealt with several times for people who should have taken money out and didn't. This is the end of Form 5329. Um, What we do is we fill out this form. We say, hey, I was supposed to take this money out last year, but I didn't know it. We fill in the amount. And we write. A, so you do file the form um, and the form, as you'll notice, says um, enter 50 percent of the amount. That's your penalty. But you also you write a letter to the IRS. And in this case, you probably would want to hire a professional to do this. You don't have to, but it's a little confusing if you've never done it before. So you write a letter, you explain what happened. For example, I have a client who before the rules changed, his father died 20 years ago. He inherited an IRA, but he didn't know. He didn't know that he was supposed to take money out. So you know, theoretically, he owned or owed the IRS hundreds of thousands of dollars for all these missed RMDs for 20 years. But, um, you know, it was an honest mistake. He didn't know. And by the way, he moved it to several financial institutions over the years. He, it was at Vanguard at the time, I think, and it had it at Edward Jones before that. None of them mentioned it. Now, it's nice if they do you know, if your bank or Fidelity or Vanguard or Schwab or wherever you have your money, if you have an inherited IRA, they very often will send you reminders. Hey, remember your RMDs, but they don't have to, you know, the the responsibility is yours. You need to know about RMDs. So, you know, in our letter to the IRS explaining why he didn't take his required minimum distributions, um, we did mention that, that he'd had it at several different institutions and know whatever mentioned it that's one of the reasons he didn't know but it's not an excuse you know sort of a cry for mercy hey nobody told me um but we wrote our letter we explained the problem he paid all the tax he owed because you always owe tax when you take required minimum distributions but we did get away with not paying that 50 percent penalty so again the the process with this is if you get a notice that you missed an rmd and you're in trouble don't panic Um, Understand the penalty is serious, but it is pretty common to be able to appeal that and win. Just make sure you follow the steps, you be honest, you do it as fast as possible, and you file Form 5329, and you may be able to get around it. There's the details on that. And then this is one thing where if they don't think you did it fraudulently, three years go by without a response, the statute of limitations is over, and you're okay. All right, now we're going to get into some more ugly stuff. What's the worst that can happen? And here's three ugly words, garnishments, levies, and liens. A garnishment means um, that the IRS says you owe back taxes. We're going to take it out of your paycheck. That's really ugly. Because for one thing, it means your employer now knows that you got a problem. And in a former life, I was an HR director. And um, this did happen from time to time. I'd get a letter from an IRS that says, hey, Joe Smith, one of your employees, Owes a lot of money to the IRS, you need to start withholding money from his paychecks and sending it direct to the IRS. I can tell you as an HR professional, it's a huge pain in the neck. I didn't need no more work to do. I had a big enough job already. So I didn't feel too good about this guy, Joe. And you know, it's embarrassing, it's a problem, and it reduced his take-home pay. He was very upset also. But when you do owe money to the IRS, it's a serious issue. It's not a debt that just disappears. They tend to be pretty tenacious. So that's another reason you want to keep up with things. You want to answer their questions. You want to follow the rules because they do have the legal right to contact your employer and withhold money from your paychecks. And that is ugly. So a levy permits the legal seizure of your property to satisfy a tax debt, also ugly. That means that, um, you know, let's say you own a home or a rental property or a car. If you owe back taxes, the IRS has the right to come and take it. Now they're not going to show up in the middle of the night without warning. There's plenty of process and due procedure and chances for you to appeal, but they do have that right to take your stuff if you're not paying your taxes. So you don't want to get behind. Um, Here's specific definitions. A levy is a legal seizure of your property to satisfy a tax debt. A garnishment is a lien against your wages. And a lien is a legal claim against property to secure payment of the tax debt. So I think where I saw that one time is um, somebody I knew who owned a rental property and the IRS was able to put a lien on that property, so he couldn't he couldn't do anything with the property, he couldn't collect rent until he got caught up with his taxes. So these are all things you absolutely want to avoid. And again, they don't happen overnight. Before the IRS garnish your wages, for example, they're going to give you a lot of opportunities to fix it another way, because nobody wants to go down this path, but it does happen. So that's one reason we don't ignore notices from the IRS, because we never want to get to this point. So, if you do not pay your taxes, and this is copied directly from IRS.gov, if you do not pay your taxes or make arrangements to do that, they can levy your property and notice such as your wages, retirement accounts, dividends, bank accounts, rental income, yada, yada. It's pretty ugly. But you will get a tax bill, a final notice, and at least 30 days warning, at least 30 days warning. But don't get to that point. Here's some limitations. A judgment creditor from a lawsuit can take 25% of your disposable income. Uh, these are the other two things, by the way, these are not specifically tax related, but um, there's basically three kinds of debt that are terrible to be in tax debt, child support or alimony that you're supposed to pay and didn't and federal student loans, you, your paychecks can be garnished for any of those reasons. So you know, when I have a client who's in debt, credit card debt is awful, because the interest rate is so high, mortgage debt is usually great, Mortgage debt, usually the interest rate is low, the interest may be tax deductible, and you're building something for your future. You're buying a house. That's a wonderful thing. So there's good debt and there's bad debt. Bad debt is unpaid child support, alimony, federal student loans, and taxes. These are bad debts because they are going to haunt you forever until you fix them. And you're not building anything for the future. You know, this is not borrowing to improve your life. This is you need to fix it. So for taxes, um, how much they can garnish depends on how many dependents you have and a few other things. It's a little complicated. I think 25% of your take-home pay is sort of the, the general range of what could happen. So what do you do? Again, contact the IRS immediately. Read this particular IS publication, 1660, Collection Appeal Rights. Now, one note about that. I mentioned there's a You know, there are particular IRS publications about every particular topic. You don't need to memorize this number, 1660, because you know how to use Google and you know how to use IRS.gov. So I just want to mention IRS.gov is the official IRS website and it is surprisingly well written. And they are the final answer to everything. So, you know, if you have a tax question, it's fine to Google around and read articles and things, but really know that IRS.gov is the ultimate source and they probably have a publication about it. And that's what goes. No matter how much somebody else interprets it, I usually start there and see what they say. Okay, we have a poll question. Now, Megan said, don't worry, they're professionals, but I'm gonna still say, answer the poll question in case you snuck away to go to the bathroom or turn down the sound on me. Answer the poll question. Okay, and on we go. We have one question. It says, are you saying a lien on real estate would prevent someone from collecting rents or would just need to be paid upon sale? They could take a portion of your rents. They could. Um, It's not just at the time of sale. Um, Situations differ, but they could. Okay, so again, if you have a specific question, go to irs.gov. But if you're trying to get rid of a levy or a lien, work with them on an installment agreement. That means like you say, hey, I agree with you. I owe this money. I'm sorry, but I don't have the cash. Don't hide your head in the sand. Admit it. Say, I don't have the cash. Can we work out an installment agreement? And if they agree to that, you get to gradually pay off your debt. But if you agree to that, don't mess up. Like Once you agree, you've got to make those payments on time. And if you don't, the deal is off and you're back in trouble again. So um, working it out. You can get an extension of time to pay. 120-day extension is easy to get. Um, But if they've already sent you a notice of intent to levy, then 60 days. Again, another reason that if you ever get a letter or phone call or whatever, you want to respond immediately because the clock starts ticking. But usually you can get an extension of time to pay. Maybe you need to borrow money from a friend or something to get this done or you need to sell a property, whatever. There is some time. It's not bad men coming in the middle of the night and stealing all your stuff. Okay, to get an installment agreement, if you owe $50,000 or less, that's relatively good. You might get a streamlined agreement. If that's the case, you can pay by direct debit, which is usually a good idea because then there's no danger of you forgetting to write the check. You can get it done in 72 months, which is six years. Um, There will be annual costs for interest and penalties and setup fees of 6% last I knew. Um, If there's a hardship agreement, they can set uh, terms to repay your plan. Um, There's a status called CNC for currently not collectible. You have to prove that you're really broke. You will have to document things and you might get some time off. Uh, I mean, some time, you know, extra time to pay if you can prove that you currently just cannot pay no matter what you do. Then there's this thing called an offer in compromise. And that may mean it's an OIC that may mean that they will agree to settle the tax liability for less than the total amount owed. Don't count on it. That's very hard to get. You know, you would have to prove that you own nothing. You can't earn any money. There's no way you can get future income. This might be, let's say you were old and disabled and they just realized, hey, she's never going to earn that kind of money. They might settle for less, but don't count on that. Try for one of these other things like finding a way to pay in installments. Um, Try to do it before a levy leaner garnishment happens. So again, if you wanna respond quickly, you wanna start making a deal as soon as you hear there's a problem. You don't wanna sit around and wait and say, oh, they won't do anything for 60 days. Because after they've taken these other steps, it gets harder to fix. Offering compromise, as I said, be aware it's not easy. You can't have a bankruptcy proceeding underway. You have to be current with all your tax return filings. Remember, one of the things I've really harped on today is always file, even if you don't have money. So if you're behind on your tax filings, isn't gonna work. If by any chance you think this is an option for you, I'm just providing the links and more information about how to research it more. Okay, we're at the end of our slides. We'll still take more questions, but in summary, you're gonna read carefully Follow directions, stay organized, be calm, cool, competent, confident, and courteous. Again, I want to stress that IRS agents are people, you know, so you don't want to approach them with hostility. They're probably a little underpaid. Uh, they're probably, I know they're extremely busy, but their job is to solve problems. And so if somebody contacts you, you want to be very polite to them, realize they didn't cause the problem and be polite and competent and figure it out. I see one more poll question up right now. Poll question for those of you who went to the bathroom. Okay, ask for help if you want to. One of the questions I saw came in, somebody said, well, doesn't your tax professional help with this? And the answer is, yeah. If you have a tax professional and you get one of these letters or something, absolutely contact them. And if you don't have a tax professional, you did your taxes yourself and you get a letter, could be a great time to contact a professional and ask for help. Now, one thing about that, They can't take all the onus off you. Um, You are still always responsible for your problems and always responsible for paying taxes. It's not sort of unfortunately, you can't just say, hey, my tax guy said it was fine. You know, you, you do rely on their advice to a large extent. But if you ever suspect that your tax person is shady or incompetent or, you know, or suggesting things that don't sound quite right, you need to think about that. And you need to find a new tax professional because you are always responsible, but yes, of course, I you know I think it's a great idea to ask for help because you know what? Tax laws are super complicated. They always have been, and they always will be. They get more complicated every year. Lately, that pace has sped up. I would say they almost get complicated more every day now, and so it's unfortunate, but it's true, and it means that those of us who deal with these problems regularly, it's quite possible that when you call up and say, Oh, my goodness, this terrible problem happened. it's Quite possible. One of us will say, Oh, yeah, I've seen that before. Here's how we fix it. It can take a lot of pressure off. So if you want help, you don't have to, you're perfectly fine, you know, to write your own letter, um, or whatever you want to do. But if you want help, ask for help, just be aware that, you know, ultimately, you're always responsible. So one thing you can't do is say, Hey, my tax guy said it was fine. (laughs) If the tax guy's not doing his job, you're still on the hook. Another thing you can't do is say, hey, some lady in San Francisco said this at nine o'clock in the morning. Um, you know, you're know, you still responsible. I'm trying to give you absolutely accurate information and I'm trying to be helpful, but you're always on the line. You can't just say, hey, she said it was fine. The IRS is gonna say, we don't know who that is. You, know, you need to fix this. So ask for help if you want to, and then work it out. That's another way of saying, do not hide, get this fixed. Whatever it takes gets it fixed. And understand what went wrong to make sure whether it never happens again. And that's whether you made a mistake or your employer made a mistake or the IRS made a mistake or you didn't pay your taxes or you didn't report your taxes, whatever it is, make sure you don't do it again. You know, you don't want this trouble again in any case. All right. Who has to file? Um, That's a question that comes up a lot of times. You know, people say, you know, hey, I didn't make any money this year. Do I really need to file a tax return? Maybe not. I would go to irs.gov and check on that. Most adults do need to file a tax return. It's usually a good idea. Um, and if your gross income is greater than the standard deduction, you almost certainly do. Um, gross income means like all the money you earn. It doesn't mean your income after you deduct business expenses. And the standard deduction in 2022 for a single person is 12950 For a married filing jointly couple, it's twice that, so 25000 and something. So if your income is more than that, you almost certainly do need to file a tax return. This is more info about me. This is not a commercial, you know, <laughs> no, no obligation to call me for help about anything. But if you are looking for a financial planner or a tax professional, there's my website. It's ClarityFinancialCA, as in California, And now I'm going to um, look and see if we have more questions about anything. Um, I don't see new ones in Q&A, so I'm going to look back at some of the others. Yeah, do we have a live question? Oh, I thought I heard someone no. live clicking in. Go
0: ahead. It does not appear to have any live questions.
1: Oh. Um, Wait just a second, I see something coming in. Oh, no live questions. Okay, great. I'm gonna look back then at the Q&A
2: ones and see if there's anything we didn't get to. Um, and feel free to put more in Q&A because I think we still have a few more minutes. Um, there's one I don't understand. So I'm gonna encourage this person
1: to try again. It says, can you use SEV to a
2: basis. And I'm sorry, I don't know what that means. So if there's a typo there, feel free to try again. Um, Let's see. Oh, good. We have gotten to a lot of these. Um, Somebody says, I have a full-time job and get a W-2. Great i also have a
1: real estate license in the state of michigan and sell real estate part-time i do not own any properties totally fine so that person you are a business person you you have you have two jobs right you have your w-2 job and you also have your real estate license so you're getting um money and you're, you're earning money as a real estate person that's all great and you do get to deduct all of your business expenses related to your real estate business Um, The only thing that you can't do is don't deduct your home office if it's mostly for your day job. And um, you may not qualify as a real estate professional. It's totally fine. You can still, you know, take deductions for your business expenses. There's just a few things that get handled differently if you're not a real estate professional. I'll go ahead and explain what one of those is. So for a small, a small real estate owner like me. Real estate, again, it's not my day job. I am not a real estate professional. I own one little condo and I make some money from uh, rental income. Now, what that means is if I get net income from my real estate, of course, I have to pay tax on it. If I have a net loss from my real estate, I may or may not be able to deduct that loss. If I were a real estate professional, I definitely could deduct the loss. You know, if I was in the business of selling or renting real estate, It's a business like any other, my losses are tax deductible, but because I am not a real estate professional, if I get a little loss on my rental property, I can only deduct up to $25,000 worth of loss. And I can only do that if my overall income is relatively low. I can only deduct the full uh, $25,000 in net losses from real estate if my other income is less than $100,000. I can deduct some if my income is less than 150,000. Now, that limitation is because I am not a real estate professional. But as you'll see that's a little bit technical. Like either way, I do get to deduct, you know, all of my normal rental real estate expenses even though I'm not a real estate professional. So, another another distinction would be if I am a real estate professional, then I'm in business, you know, and like any other business person, you have to pay Social Security and Medicare tax, also known as payroll taxes, if that's your full time business. If it's not, like me and you own a little property on the side, that income is considered rental income, not business income, and Social
2: Security tax is not deducted from it. Oh, good. I see a couple of new questions. Uh, scrolling down there. Oh, thought I saw. It says two new questions came in, but I don't see them yet. Just a minute.
1: Okay, here we go. Somebody says I'm collecting social security over full retirement age how to report extra income over maximum income limit. All right, now let's see if I if we were in person I'd probe this a little more, but let's see if I can figure this out. So, your full retirement age, this is now we're talking about social security specifically. Social security um uh income if you're retirement income. Um your full retirement age is somewhere between 65 and 67. If you were born in 1960 or later, which is probably most of us here, because I'm pretty old and even I was born after 1960, your full retirement age is 67. So if you are 67 or over and you're taking social security retirement income, there is no problem. You can work as much as you want. There's no problem, no conflict with your social security. You can be selling real estate, earning a million dollars a year and also collecting social security income, totally fine. But, if you are under sixty seven or under your own full retirement age, whatever that is, for some people, it might be sixty six and eight months, or something like that. So whatever your full retirement age is, if you are collecting social security retirement benefits and you are earning income on the side, or you know, earning income, you may um, they may reduce your social security income. So my strong recommendation about that is, do not start taking your social security income until at least full retirement age. And then there's no problem at all. Okay. Somebody says year of your full retirement. So if you're not earning any money outside of social security, there's no problem. And if you're at least full retirement age and taking social security, there's no problem. Okay. So I hope that answered that. But if you are under full retirement age and getting social security income and earning money, you could um, end up losing some of your social security money. So it's not ideal. All right. Somebody says, does the IRS flag it if someone backdoors into a Roth IRA more than once? No. If you are following the rules for a backdoor Roth IRA, and by the way, again, that's a complicated situation. Um, We don't have time to go into all of it. But if you follow the rules for a backdoor Roth IRA, you could do it every year. It's totally fine. It's easy to kind of get it wrong, though. I've had clients do it wrong in all kinds of different ways. So if you are doing a backdoor Roth IRA, I would talk to a professional. Make sure you're doing it right. If you're doing it right, do it every year and it's totally fine. Oh, okay. This person where I thought there was a typo, he did clarify. He says, can you use <clears throat> excuse me, state equalized value, that's SEV, to set the initial basis value of a property If there are no other records or to establish land value. So I'm afraid here I have to say again, you know what? I'm not a real estate professional. So state equalized value is something I'm afraid I'm not really familiar with. Um, So I'm not the right person to ask that. But then he's saying, if there are no other records, how do you establish land value? So I would say, related to that, that um, if I owned a property and I really had no idea what the basis was, yeah, I would do whatever I could to try to establish a basis. You know, I would gather whatever information I could. And what I would do then, if I really didn't know the basis, but whatever state equalized value is, it sounds like it's some kind of estimate. It sounds better than nothing. So what I would do is I would figure out what I think is the best guess. i put that down and, you know, I would be absolutely honest. You can't lie about anything, but be honest that you're estimating, say, here's what my basis is. And then if the IRS asks questions, then you deal with it at that time. So it's fine to use your best judgment and the best information you have, admit that it's an estimate and give it a shot. That's the answer to that. But specifics about that, it'd be better if you know talk to somebody who's really familiar with what that is. Next question. If I'm a broker, I want to gift my team an amount over $300 for Christmas, what's the best way to do that? Do I write it as an expense? If I do gift cards, should I put it on payroll? Yeah, good question. So We give gifts to lots of people at Christmas time, right? Gifts in general are not a taxable event. They're not a tax deductible expense or anything. Gifts to employees are kind of different because the IRS says, you know, if somebody's working for you, it's not really a gift. Like you're really giving them that money because you're happy with the work they did for you all year. So really it is payroll. so what that means is like they have to pay payroll tax on it. You can deduct it as a business expense. Then the problem with that is like you don't want to. It's, it's no fun to just say, hey, you know how your paycheck is usually seventeen hundred dollars and thirty nine cents. This time it's going to be seventeen hundred dollars, twenty dollars and thirty nine cents because I added three hundred dollars for Christmas, but we took taxes out of it. It doesn't feel that special. You want to give them a nice card with a nice $300 in it that feels good, right? So, but you also have to pay taxes on it or there's a problem. So what I did one time when I was working for a a company, I was the finance and HR person. And my boss said, hey, I wanna give everybody a Christmas gift, write them a check. I said, okay, we can do that, but I had to make it a little bit complicated. So what I did is I figured out like how much would I have to give each person for it to be a net, of $300 or whatever. And it depends on everybody's kind of, you know, tax situation, but I'd look at it. I could say, okay, like, you know, to, for such and such a person for Edward say, um, I have to pay him 417 extra dollars in order to get to this net $300 Christmas bonus. That's one way to do it. Or, you know, go ahead and give them the $300, but you, yeah, you do have to somehow run it through payroll. If you've got a payroll service, like an ADP or something, tell them what you want to do. They'll help you make it legal. Because again, like legally, we don't really give gifts to our employees. It's really nice that you're doing it, but it does count as payroll. Okay, somebody says, if you're over 72, working as a realtor in a part-time job, can your employer give you a retirement fund and what should you do, if anything? Okay, I Think I, I think I understand this question. Um, so in general, when you're over 72, you have to start taking required minimum distributions. But if you are still working, you can also be contributing to retirement plans. You can be doing both at once. You may have RMDs. You may also be contributing. Um, if it's an employer plan, like you work someplace, you've got a 401k, they, maybe they provide an employee match to money you contribute. They have to contribute for you. Even though you're over 72, they can't say, hey, we're bumping Amanda out of the plan um, because she's over 72, because that would be age discrimination. So, yeah, it's quite possible to be over that age where you're taking RMDs and you're also contributing to retirement funds. It's totally fine. Um, let's see. So, yeah, go ahead.
0: Oh, no, I just wanted to thank you for your great presentation and your time today. Um, I think we got the majority of our questions answered.
1: Good. Okay, yep. then I'll, I'll leave you alone
2: then. Thank you very much for having me. It was so nice to to have everybody and great, great questions.